Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today, my guest is Professor Alyssa Goldstein-Seppenwall, and we will be talking about Slave Revolt on Screen, the Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games, out with University Press of Mississippi in 2021. Dr. Seppenwall, who earned her doctorate at Stanford, is a professor of history at Cal State University, San Marcos. Go CSU. Um, her previous books include The Abbe Grégoire and the French Revolution, The Making of Modern Universalism, and Haitian History, New Perspectives. She also has a number of articles and journals and edited collections, such as Journal of Modern History, Journal of Haitian Studies, Journal of American Culture, and an anthology, Raoul Peck, Power, Politics, and the Cinematic Imagination. In the interest of full disclosure, uh, Dr. Seppenwall, my friend Alyssa, is one of my favorite collaborators and, uh, you know, uh, partners in crime, unindicted co-conspirators. And uh, we both edited a volume of the World History Bulletin on France and world history um, that was published a number of years ago. I believe it's archived up on the World History Association. So if you want to uh, hear some more, read some more about France and world history that uh, we will, we will, um, uh, modestly direct you to our, our contribution to that. So, Professor Seppenwall, Alyssa, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you so much, Professor Van, a.k.a. Mike. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to do this with you. Yeah, Dr. Mike. <laughs> Dr. Mike. All right. In Indonesia, my graduate students call me Pak Mike, which is like uh, short for father, but it's like Sir Mike, but Pak Mike has a nice ring to it. Um, well, so I'm excited to have you on the podcast, both, both because we're old buddies and because Slave Revolt on Screen, The Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games is such a great book. I've been observing it over the years as it's been taking shape, uh, read a few pieces uh, here and there, um, heard you present a fantastic paper at the French Colonial Historical Society Conference on the video games in particular. And I'm just delighted to see the final project in print. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you, Mike. Yeah, just it's, it's, it's a great achievement. 
So before we get into the book, um, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? I think we share similar professional trajectories, um, starting as French historians in graduate school and then spinning off to focusing on a portion of the former French colonial empire. Uh, You, Haiti, me, Southeast Asia. So what led you from being a Keith Baker student at Stanford? I mean, Keith Baker, the dean of French Revolution Studies proper, to a scholar of the Haitian Revolution? Or is my question right there kind of leading and showing my ignorance that maybe separating the Haitian Revolution from the French Revolution? I don't know, but t- tell us, well, tell, it's, what, you what's, know, what's, it's, what's your origin story? Sure. You know, it's funny you should say, right, that the Haitian Revolution is integrally part of the French Revolution, because when I was in graduate school in the 90s, and until then, the Haitian Revolution was not part of the story when people talked about the French Revolution. In the bicentennial volumes from 1989 on the French Revolution, there was barely any mention, if no mention, of Haiti. So I started off planning to study more traditional French history like you, the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. I mean, I mean, we just we we were both in graduate school in the in the early yeah. mid nineties, and I, I in French history, and I remember that that everything was so dominated by the revolution, and there was Haiti was just not there. So right, sorry, it, was, it was not there, right? Um, but I had always been interested in the history of minoritized groups like Jews and Blacks, and I tried to figure out a way to integrate. Um, them together. So even while I was a graduate student, I started to work on France in Haiti, but that was very unusual at the time. So both you and I were on the cusp of what then later was called the colonial turn in French history, once the field took a turn. But uh, in the old days, as as you know, when there would be panel uh, conferences on French history, there might be only five or six of us who did colonial history and we'd be- It was lonely and we we were sort of oddballs and marginalized. Talk talk about marginalized groups. I mean, the studies of French, critical French colonial studies in the 90s was kind of a non-field. Yes. And in the French Colonial Historical Society, which Mm -hmm. you later were president of, there there was more transformation going on, but it took a little while in the French history societies. Um, So- Pushing other French historians to think about France beyond what we call the hexagon, the European part of France, um, was something that was important to me. And over time, the balance of my work just shifted more to Haiti. I stopped wanting to just look at what people in the metropole said about Haiti and really to study Haitians themselves. So my second book, as you said, um, was called Haitian History, New Perspectives. um, And that took me past just the revolution to looking at Haitian history over the long term. And then here I am now with a book on film and video games. Right, right. So, you know, could you give us a little run through of the Haitian revolution? Um, Key events, uh, key actors. um, This is, you know, fortunately more and more familiar to a wider audience, but still just a a quick little uh, refresher is always good. Sure, it's true. There are more and more people who are learning about the Haitian revolution in school, in part because of the work that the World History Association has done to integrate it. But still, sometimes when I tell people what I work on, they say, Tahiti? (laughs) They don't really know very much, or they just know that Haiti is poor. So Haiti was a French colony in the 18th century called Saint-Domingue. It was the Atlantic world's biggest coffee and sugar producer, the richest colony in all of the Americas. But of course, there was a brutal system of slavery there. All of that wealth depended on um, brutality towards enslaved people and resistance was suppressed. So, 
and sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I remember seeing in passing at several points that um, Sendemang had a reputation for some of the worst uh, violence against enslaved people. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. So about 90% of the population of the colony were enslaved people. So you can imagine the kind of, in order for 10% of the population to be controlling 90%, yeah. right? Yeah. It was through very brutal, violent methods where people were scared that if they dared try to resist, that horrible things would happen. And yet people still found ways to resist, even without resorting to armed revolt. Right. But so we've got the the most economically important colony at the time, arguably, and the sort of worst case scenario at the time in terms of um, treatment of human beings. Yes, absolutely. But it was going to be very difficult to have an armed rebellion. So how did that happen? Um, in 1791, which just so happened to be two years after the French Revolution, um, enslaved people took advantage of the chaos that was starting to happen on the island as different factions of whites were fighting each other um, as part of the French Revolution, and they launched um, resistance in the north. So in 1791, Boukman, um, who was an enslaved person, and a woman named Cécile Fatiman, who was a Vodou priest, they launched the revolution and it spread around um, the island. Eventually, the French had to recognize that this was happening and they didn't want Haitian people fighting against them and kicking them off the island and then the island being taken over by England or Spain, who then might take that trade and re-enslave people. So they decided will allow people to be free and then hope that they continue to grow sugar and coffee for us and stay part of France. So 1794 is when the French decreed, okay, slavery is over. Um, But in 1802, under new leadership, Napoleon, um, the, the French were listening to all the colonists who said, you know, quote unquote, we lost our property. And so Napoleon sent an expedition with the goal of putting the island under control again and bringing back the old order. And Haitians did not want to be re-enslaved. I mean, be, yeah. be, you're being diplomatic, bringing yes. back slavery, not, yes. not the old order, but yes, reimposing yes. slavery, which right. is, is like kind of a mind-boggling idea. Right. Talk that- about live free or die, right? That's something <laughs> that was said in North America, but the white North American colonists were not actually enslaved people. So Haitians did not want to go back into slavery So they fought bitterly and they were able to defeat Napoleon's armies, which surprised a lot of people who didn't expect them to be able to do it. And in 1804, Haitian independence was declared um, under Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are some of the, um, what are some of the history? Well, actually, first let me ask you about the um, significance of history and memory of the Haitian Revolution. Um, for for the importance of the revolution for for Haiti's national consciousness, but also for French history, uh, you make some important points about the significance of the Haitian Revolution for American history and its role in world history. Thank you. So I think that the Haitian Revolution significance varies, but it's tremendously important. It's something that for a long time people just ignored in U.S. academia. I'll say unless they were African American, because in the early twentieth century. You had a lot of African-American scholars from HBCUs who were, excuse me, working on Haiti. Um, But in in the United States, um, especially now, as people have started to look at Haiti more, they're reclaiming it as a symbol of black freedom. 
um, and liberty and self-determination, which is one reason that Haiti was such an important symbol for African-Americans um, from 1804 to the present. Uh, in France, it's different. In France, because this was like Vietnam for the U.S., this shock, this loss, there was an effort to forget it, to have a kind of amnesia and not talk about it. So much so that uh, President Jacques Chirac actually claimed in the early 2000s, and he, he probably wasn't lying. He thought it was true. He'd never learned about it. He said Haiti was never a French colony. Um, you know, magically they speak French, but that how, wasn't so part. You, you mentioned that in the book, but how, how on earth did Jacques Chirac say that? It's this whole amnesia about French slavery, right? Yeah. The French... Uh, like to imagine that slavery was an American thing in the South. It was far away. And then meanwhile, you're a specialist in colonial Vietnam and Indochina. And so all of the traumas for the friends of losing Algeria and losing Vietnam are much fresher than Haiti. So there's just right now a process where French academics are trying to talk more about that. And there was an article in The New Yorker um, last year in which my research was mentioned that talked about the fact that this still is not uh, discussed. But in Haiti, of course, the legacy of the revolution is much more complicated. Um, and one reason for that is that many Haitians would say that the revolution's legacy is still not fulfilled, that they're still waiting now in 2021 to have the equality and the things that revolutionary leaders like Toussaint Louverture and Desalines promised. So there, the revolution is not something just to put on a pedestal, but something to keep fighting for and to still try to be achieving now. Mm -hmm. And what, what are some of the various historiographic debates on the Haitian revolution? I know that there's an older Eurocentric narrative that um, stresses the impact of the Enlightenment and like literally white men showing up and telling black men and women about ideas of freedom and equality. And then, you know, the white guys inspired them uh, versus maybe um, somewhat more nuanced and sophisticated narrative that uh, identifies the role of Haitians um, in as historical actors and making their own history. So what, what, what are some of the, the tensions? In the, yes, in you've the, explained that very well, Mike. And so in, <sighs> in one regard, it's kind of white hero history versus black agency. Um, but when the French do talk about this, when scholars do talk about this, it has often been a story about the French Revolution sending liberating ideas around the world and sleeping backwards people suddenly realizing, oh, we like this idea of liberty and equality. We want to have that too. So in that narrative, the French are not brutal enslavers. They are wonderful people who sent ideas to other people, which woke them up. And there's still a lot of that around, sadly. I still see those narratives which suggest, oh, the French Revolution happened and then Haitians got the idea that they wanted to be free. Of course, Haitians had always wanted to be free. Um, as Haitians talk about their own history, from the moment that people were captured in Africa and enslaved, people wanted freedom. It wasn't something that they suddenly heard about by listening, you know, at the dinner table to their enslavers after 1789. Um, so Haitian narratives stress resistance that was um, maybe not the same all of the time, but that was ongoing long before 1789. So to kind of sum that up, the question is, did 1789 and French ideals cause the Haitian Revolution, or were they just an opportunity that Haitians took to get the freedom that they had wanted? 
But isn't isn't there a major revolt in the 1750s? Um, yeah, there are a few different ones that happen uh, uh, around the 18th century. Certainly in the 1750s, there was a spate of poisonings mm. that happened. Um, because again, enslaved people, if they didn't have access to arms, and if they didn't want um, to be tortured and to have all of their family tortured, they tried to do resistance that was more surreptitious, that couldn't be traced to them. So there was a spate of poisonings right now, whether these were... Um, Purposeful poisonings is being contested. Hmm. Um, um, John Garrigus is arguing that they weren't purposeful. But at any rate, um, Mackendall, who was an enslaved person um, and a Vodou priest, um, was said to have been behind this all, and then he was tortured and executed. In the, in 1750s? In or? the 1750s, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So it, you know, from the from the Haitian perspective, this is this is the culmination of a series of revolts, longer term political ferment yes. organizing um, and, and so forth, um, which is, you know, definitely, I mean, I, you know, I learned about the Haitian revolution and in, in, in my AP world history uh, class in the eighties, but it was very much, yeah, the white guys showed up on boats and told them, told the enslaved people. And then and they, they joined into the revolutionary project. Um, so I think that's an important shift. And one of the things we, I mean, that um, hopefully all the listeners know, but I think is important to underline is how significant this revolution is in world history. Uh, it's the, the. I mean, what, how, how, how would you classify it in terms of, uh, is, is it the, is it the, it's the first successful It's the first slave successful slave first, revolution in the new world that results in an independent state. Um, so the first, first one that first is first black republic. Yes, first black republic. Although there's discussion about the word republic and yeah, whether it's appropriate yeah, when we yeah. have an emperor um, and then a king. Um, but definitely, um, it is the first place where enslaved people overthrew their oppressors and had their own country in the new world. And then, of course, when we talk about the age of revolutions, right? The French and the Americans both talk about all men being free. But it was only in Haiti where that was really made a reality first, um, where a person's skin color did not matter. Gender, yes, that mm-hmm. is another mm-hmm. question, but where men of all colors were deemed to be equal. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I teach um, the world history sequence and uh, cover the Atlantic revolutions, it's American, French, Haitian, and Bolivarian. And, and the, the game that I play with the students is like, how hard do these revolutions push on different social um, barriers, and you know the, the class barrier, race, class, gender is right there in the American Revolution. Hard, the French seem to puncture that cl- that class barrier. Uh, the Haitians puncture the race barrier, and then in some ways the Bolivarian Revolution is is like a throwback to yes what the North Americans were up to. But um, but also um, to the Haitian Revolution just in terms of the significance of the the, the economic significance. This is a huge blow to the French economy. Yes. It's it's a major disruption to the Atlantic system. Yes. I mean, I could talk in much more detail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could go on for a few hours. And that's one of the things that my second book, Haitian History, New Perspectives, mm-hmm. looks at is this long legacy. So in the United States, it made enslavers more afraid of revolts. So they became even more brutal. And this happened in many other countries. Um, around the Atlantic. And then, of course, enslaved people heard about it. So we did have more revolts in different places that were inspired by the Haitian Revolution. But it was a big blow 
to France. And then, of course, we haven't even mentioned the fact that after Haitians did this, other countries wanted to punish them to prevent copycat um, uprisings in other places. So there was an effort to isolate Haiti. And then, of course, Haitians um, paid 150 million francs um, or said that they would in 1825 to the French as a condition of other people not treating them as a pariah state anymore. Yeah, I mean, institutionally impoverished for, for yes. generations. purposely yeah. impoverished. Yep. The, the, yep. <laughs> the poverty is the point, right, to show other right. people that um, overthrowing whites and ruling yourselves is not something you should dare to do. Right, right. So um, Slave Revolt on screen deserves praise for so many reasons. Um, most importantly, as we've been discussing, it's such, it's such an important topic, right, that it's, it's, it's been forgotten about in, in many in many people's minds. Um, and it wrestles with the, the question of why there's such a dearth of memory about the Haitian Revolution, and again, at least in North America and in Europe. Um, and as you try to answer that question, you take us to some surprise to some surprising places. You take us to the movies, right? And and take us to go play some video games. And the book is just this really fabulous blend of both um, scholarly historical analysis and inquiry um, uh, with cultural analysis, and you know, film studies, game studies, uh, literary analysis. And the, I love that the book starts off with, you know, of all people, one of my favorites, the comedian Chris Rock. Um, and, you know, it's, it's pretty unusual in my career to be able to pick up a book and the opening sentences are about Chris Rock, right? Um, so how is Chris Rock an entry to the issues around um, the history and memory of the Haitian Revolution? So Chris Rock, it's a little known fact that he's a historiographer. Um, <laughs> he hasn't used the word, but for a long time, he's been challenging conventional narratives of history. He did this on SNL in the 90s talking about Columbus. Uh, but I had been thinking about historiography and narratives. How is the Haitian Revolution described? Just as we talked about what are different schools of thought. And I had started to look at films um, and I... Um, gave my one of my first papers where I talked about just a few films and a very generous person in the audience, Phil Kaisery, who also is interested in films, said, well, what about top five? This was in 2014 when it had only just come out. And I said, what is top five? And I hadn't heard about it yet. And then when I finally watched this film, I was blown away because I realized that the things that I had been saying in my scholarship about silences, about the Haitian Revolution, and about uh, the way that um, white North Americans and Europeans have often minimized its significance, even when they acknowledge it. Chris Rock had this all in this comedy film. So uh, you know the plot of the film. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, my, my jaw dropped too when I saw it because I'm like, wait a minute, this, this, is, this film's about history, it's about historiography. Yes. Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell your listeners in yeah. case they haven't seen it. This is a film that Chris Rock wrote, directed, and starred in. He plays a writer, director, actor, much like himself, named Andre Allen. Very self-effacing. Yes. And in this um, film, maybe self-effacing, maybe the target is uh, outside of him. But in this film, Hmm. his character tries to make a film about the Haitian Revolution and whites are not ready for this film. Or he, he, ha- he has made a film. He, excuse and he, he's, me. He's doing, he, he's doing he's the promotional tour. He's made a film. Tour. He's doing the promotion. Yes. So he's, ta- he's talking to radio. Doesn't he talk to like Opie and Andy or Absolutely. somebody? Absolutely, like, yes. He talks, you know, gets all these celebrity cele- cameos. Yes. 
And the film is called yeah. Uprise. It's a biopic of Bukman, who had launched the Haitian Revolution with Cecile Fatiman. And people do not want to see this movie. They don't even know. They Not only do they not know what the Haitian Revolution is, they don't know what a slave revolt is. And so I saw that Chris Rock was very subtly, but still very clearly to someone like me or to you, pointing to the fact that Hollywood is not ready for this. And it's not just something that I gleaned from the movie in his interviews about the film. He's been very clear that he would like to make a slave revolt film, but that people don't want to see that from him. They want to see him laugh and be like Marty the Zebra in Madagascar. So I saw that Chris Rock was paralleling what I and earlier Michel Rovtruyot had said about silences around the Haitian Revolution. That's who I was going to invoke because um, Ed's... There's these great scenes where he's trying to explain the the Haitian Revolution and the and like the DJs who are interviewing him say, "Well, what's a slave revolt?" Like they they can't even fathom it. Yes, and it's it's this comic representation of what uh, Trio is arguing about, like the impossibility of imagining the yes. Haitian Revolution. And the immediate response was, "Wait, this is something where black people killed white people? Oh no, white people don't want to see that." <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so that was your, you, you had been working on this. I had been working on this this? topic, but when I saw that film, I said, oh my goodness, I need first, I need to write a whole article about this film. Um, And then I realized, okay, now I have a book here because I have um, a lot of other things and we'll talk about the video games that I found also. Right. Right. And then also just, um, just to finish up with, with uh, Chris Rock's contributions, he also brings this conversation into the Oscars. Um, yes. During the was, yes. was that the the hashtag Oscar so white year? It was. Where people were it really was. hammering the, the academy. And so he was very um, explicit in his yeah. in his monologue in talking about racism in Hollywood. Um, and there were ways in which I think he was still being mischievous in acting as if he was criticizing that movement and people who had boycotted, even while he was still affirming all of the things that it was saying. Um, about how Hollywood does not take black history seriously. Um, yeah, so I, I was very impressed also by that monologue, and that's why I decided to start there, to start the book there. Right. right. So um, walk us through the structure of the book. Uh, you've got three sections, the first on foreign views, then the second on Haitian perspectives, and the third on video games as this alternative screen culture. Uh, and they each build on each other um, and builds this, this larger argument. Um, so let's go through each, each section. Um, starting with the first section, how has the global North presented the Haitian revolution on film? What are some of the tropes we see? What are some of the more cringy kind of things? Um, I, I know you really take the film Burn to task, which um, I mean, I'll, I'll confess, I, I know Burn is problematic AF, but I still, I'm so captivated by that film. Um, it was it, the first one that I knew also. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. think that there are valuable things about it. Yeah. So so tell us about this this first section where you, you start to go through these um, Western, European, and, and North American representations. Sure. So right when we say Global North, in this context, film, we're talking about Hollywood and Paris, yeah. primarily, even though there's some other film centers. So on the one hand, there's been uh, ignoring the Haitian Revolution. When we think about all of the films that there are on the French Revolution or on other epic kind of epic stories, 
there has not been a big epic yet on the Haitian Revolution. And one of the things I talk about in the film, just as Chris Rock showed in Top 5, <laughs> this kind of fear of putting this on screen, unless maybe there's a white hero um, that white audiences can look at and say, oh, if I was there, that would have been me, um, and then not really grapple um, with issues of structural racism. Um, but in, in fact, there are some films, as you see in the book that I found, that are about the Haitian Revolution. And some of them have good points, right? Burn. <laughs> there are many good things about the film, but there are still some ideas that are racist or unwittingly racist in the film. So I build here on Michel Wolf Trouillot, who said that even when, quote unquote, Westerners, North Americans and Europeans talk about the Haitian Revolution, sometimes they do it in really dismissive ways. For instance, thinking that Haitians could not have imagined, planned, and organized their own revolution. Someone must have tricked them into doing it. So some of the tropes that we see in films, um, The Emperor Jones was a film with Paul Robeson um, in the early 20th century that is loosely based on the story of Henri Christophe, who was a revolutionary who later becomes king of the north of Haiti. In, in that film, we have the trope where um, a black head of state is ridiculous. Like if there's a black head of state, he must be corrupt and kind of a buffoon, even though Robeson did his best um, in that role. Yeah, and that's and he, a, and Robeson's character is an American. He's who, an American, who's right? A, who's a gambler who gets into that's a knife right. fight he or watched, something. He's a he, criminal. He escapes and he goes so he's, to the island. He's a ne'er-do-well. And, and, yeah, uh, and the people there accept him as their king, um, and he just steals lots of money from them uh, and ultimately has a tragic end. But that's I, one. Go ahead. Yeah, and I was, I was really, you know, Robeson's such a hero of mine, and I, I, I didn't know this film, and I was... Did did he say much about it? Like what he was yeah, trying I'd to do? Yeah, I'd say it was it was not his. I mean, he was taking the roles he was offered, and he was yeah. trying to get better roles. Yeah. So later, he tried to make a much better film mm. on the Haitian Revolution with Sergei Eisenstein in mm. Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that my colleagues Charles Forsdick and Christian Hoaxberg have written an article about. So Robeson definitely. Uh, I, again, this is what he was getting from Hollywood, and he wanted to do films that were better, but. Right. That's what we have on screen. Um, then burn. There we have this trope. A white man <laughs> instigates the revolution in order to capture the trade um, for England versus the uh, country who's in charge of this fictional island. And even if enslaved people, enslaved people were unhappy, uh, the film kind of portrays them as kind of too backwards and passive to have thought of this on their own without being pushed. Although I mean, with, you're being too kind, kind of betrays. No, <laughs> <laughs> the Marlon Brando character, who again is so problematic, but I just, I, I'm just so captivated by that performance because it's so over the top. And I, I read somewhere Brando said that was one of his favorite roles. Um, he's just, he's wearing this ascot and these super tight white pants and just everything about it just drips like, well, I, we, I guess today maybe we call it toxic or imperialistic mm -hmm. masculinity. Yes. Um, but the, um, I mean, he he literally grabs like what a stevedore, a dock worker, and teaches the guy. You know, gives him revolutionary consciousness. I mean, it is it is all white man, but it's but it's interesting because he's not. I mean, it's open for critique. I mean, he's he's not necessarily a savior. I mean, this is 
Right. Who, who made this film after all? Who made this film? Well, Pontecorvo, who made Battle of Algiers. And so the, the great revolutionary right, filmmaker, right? right? So. The, what I argue about that film yeah. um, is that it's anti-colonial, but it has more kind of racist presuppositions than Battle of Algiers. Battle of Algiers, yeah. which he made with the support and in collaboration with the newly independent Algerian government, shows Algerians fighting back against the French um, on their own accord. But somehow when he turned to the Caribbean um, and to enslaved Africans, he didn't have this idea that they could have planned it all themselves. Uh, But as you know, he's also making a critique at the time he's making the film um, about Vietnam and the way that other countries interfere and make people puppets and then watch things explode. I mean, to be to be fair, it's it's really a film about American imperialism. Yes. In yes. the in the Cold War yes. as opposed to doing Haitian history or Absolutely, doing Caribbean history. I mean there's yes. and, and and it's 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 a you know, it's a little unfortunate to use Caribbeans uh uh for for this purpose, right? But but that was his his project and, yes. and um but it uh you know, I, I taught it a couple – I've taught it a number of times, and I taught it in China twice uh, to my – Wow, uh, that must have been uh, interesting. Students in Shanghai. They were – they were they they enjoyed it, um, although they were uh, horrified by one of the ends at the – one of the lines at the very end of the film where uh, Brando says, well, everybody loves uh, milk and sugar in their tea. And they were like, ah, what's wrong with you English people? <laughs> you, know, you don't do that to tea. But anyway, so um, – so Yeah, and so just Bert one of the Burns, other – yeah. yeah. One of the other tropes that I just wanted to mention is something that you can see in the French Toussaint Louverture miniseries, which again is one of the only dramatic films directly on the Haitian Revolution. And there, unfortunately, it's really, as I um, have argued, a whitewash of what happened in the Haitian Revolution. It suggests that the ideas (laughs) for liberation came from the French, that the Haitians didn't have the idea before the film goes so far as to suggest that Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the revolution, that he was happy being a slave um, until he read some French Enlightenment books, which taught him that slavery was wrong and that he should be ashamed of this and want to be free. Uh, And the film also portrays slavery is not so bad, therefore portraying Haitians as savage um, and violent for overthrowing the nice French people. So those are some of the tropes you have. If the Haitian Revolution is mentioned, we've got white hero abolitionists or French ideals, and then uh, enslaved people are just copying these ideas or celebrating when freedom is given to them. Yeah. And just to circle back to one of the the points we we talked about earlier, Haiti or Saint-Domingue before the revolution had that reputation for being one of the most brutal colonies for the treatment of enslaved people. Right. So it's, it's even more shocking to efface that, uh, the brutality yes. of the slave system. Yes. As I discuss in my book, there's some parts of the Toussaint Louverture miniseries that I like. And mm-hmm. in the book, I won't give it all away in the podcast, but there are some special reasons why some of the movie is good and other parts are not good. Yeah. So, well, how do Haitian filmmakers and, and their perspective, how does that, how does that contrast with the, uh, these Global North, these French and American uh, productions? Thank you for asking. Uh, And I'll say that many people don't even know that their films exist because Mm -hmm. it is much harder for them to get their films out distributed than it is for filmmakers from Hollywood and from Paris. So I had to work very hard to find these films and in some cases to be in touch with the filmmakers to get copies. 
if they weren't available on DVD, they weren't on YouTube, they're certainly not on Netflix or HBO Max. Um, but I think it's really, really important to see how they understand their H- 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 HBO Max has done some good work this year. HBO Max, okay. Come on, Amazon Prime. Raul exterminate all the brutes. Yes, oh, you're right. It's a revolutionary moment for HBO. Yes, I take that back. HBO um, Max definitely is leading I, the way in featuring some Haitian filmmakers. I, I receive no financial support from HBO, but uh, if, no, if, if they're interested in supporting me, I'm here. Yes. <laughs> um, so in contrast to these films, especially from France, um, they de-emphasize 1789. They de-emphasize the effect of the French Revolution. And as I've said that Haitian scholars often do when talking about their history, they focus on long-term resistance. Another thing that they do is that they think about the Haitian Revolution, not just as a symbol and as an endpoint, but as kind of their origin story. And to look back and say, why haven't we achieved that yet? What are the things that have prevented that? Another thing that the Haitian films do that uh, I have not seen as much in foreign films is they acknowledge the role of women in the Haitian Revolution, um, which I think is really important. And the foreign films tend to just look at some great men. Um, and, and, and oftentimes just one great man, right? I mean, it's- Oftentimes, it's, right. It's Toussaint just like Louverture. Toussaint Louverture, yeah, right? That's right. And another thing is that they don't distort the religion of voodoo. Hmm. So there's a long tradition in Hollywood since the U.S. occupied Haiti, 1915 to 1934, that Haiti appears as this monstrous place with this horrible, scary religion, which was caricatured as voodoo with voodoo, with voodoo dolls. But Vodou is uh, an entire religious tradition um, with African roots um, that gives meaning to a lot of Haitian people. So in Haitian films, um, it's seen as something that gave people comfort and the courage to decide to rise up against their oppressors. Whereas in foreign films, it's often this scary backwards thing where these, you know, creepy priests yell at people to go kill their masters. So it's not seen that way in the Haitian films. But in general, there's more Haitian agency and the revolution is not portrayed as something violent, scary and horrible as it is in some of the foreign films. Right. And that that voodoo trope, I mean, is is not just in films about the revolution per se. I mean, which are relatively few, but I mean, I, so... (laughs) A little embarrassing, but I, I, I was a child. Um, I mean, my my early, my I, at one point I was a child, uh, and it, and it was in the seventies. And my my introduction to the Caribbean was probably um, James Bond, like "Live and Let Die." Yes, Ro- Roger Moore, which is like the most obnoxious, racist, uh, essentialist, orientalized depiction of Odu with the. Um, uh, I, I don't I don't think they identify the the island as Haiti, but it was pretty clear that they're sort of like flirting with like uh, Papa Doc and, and just all that sort of I need ter- to go terrifying back. racial images of the Caribbean. What, what? I saw it as a child, but I need to go back and watch it with that lens. But yes, you have these br- br- kind brace of- Brace yourself, brace yeah, yourself. <laughs> you have these Haitian bogeymen yeah. um, and voodoo caricatured in a lot of movies. Uh, it's people who write about horror films, these mm-hmm. voodoo zombie films that were- a core to early Hollywood. Yeah. And and many of those uh coming out at the time of the rise of Black Power. Yes. As, as you as you know in the end of the book with um Planet of the Apes, which uh 
again, another childhood favorite of mine that probably uh, instilled some problematic ideas in my young brain, but let's go on. So um, you mentioned some of the um, the challenges faced, faced by Haitian uh, filmmakers in terms of financing, uh, control of the narrative, and also language choice, French, Creole, English. Like what, what are the various obstacles, challenges um, to uh, for, for the Haitian filmmakers? Thank you for asking this question, Mike. It's really important because uh, I have outlined for you, right, how people from the global north have portrayed it and how Haitians have portrayed it. But we have this huge imbalance and asymmetry because those first group of films are the films that people know about, that they can stream, that they can buy DVDs of, that they could have seen in the theaters or on their televisions. And Haitians do not have budgets to work with like people do in Hollywood or in Paris, even for documentaries. Um, the Haitians are not able to go to their government to get subsidies. People just can't go to wealthy people and their family and see if they can get money for a documentary. So Haitian filmmakers, if they're making films, it is a labor of love. And they are really having to hustle on shoestring budgets um, to make films. And sometimes they're shorts instead of um, full-length films because that's what they're able to afford. Um, but this is a... Um, just a symptom of this larger imbalance mm -hmm. between the global North and the global South. And the irony here is that the very history that these films are talking about, which is slavery and what happens afterwards, how Haiti gets sh uh, kind of shut off and made to be poor, that governs who tells the story now. So the economic legacy of this slavery and colonialism means that it's the um, former colonizers and enslavers who get to tell the story on screen, while Haitians still, um, as, as part of this long-term effort to keep Haitians poor, are not able to make films as easily. So one of the things that I really try to encourage people to do in the book is to decolonize their viewing choices and to try to seek out support. What are the things that we can do to make it easier for Haitians um, to tell the story. But you have mentioned one of the main exceptions. Raoul Peck, Haitian filmmaker, now president of the FEMI in Paris, able to get uh, a budget from HBO Max for this epic miniseries, Exterminate All the Brutes. There's an opportunity for audiences to see some Haitian perspectives uh, on screen. And I think I, I agree with you. It's a really revolutionary miniseries in presenting ideas that many uh, Americans, USians, as my students like to call them, have not had to grapple with on screen. Yeah, no. The the if anyone hasn't seen that series yet, it is it is it it's challenging in a in a whole number of ways, structure, content, so forth. But so incredibly provocative and, yes. and really really revolutionary. And for and for that to be on such a mainstream media platform as as HBO, and um, I was. I'm writing a review of it, and I was so I was rewatching re it the past couple of days, and I was really struck with um, the way it has so many um, elements of revenge fantasy in it. I saw a recent like video with, games. Oh well, okay, hold on. That's an, that's an excellent <laughs> we'll get to segue. That later. I see. I see a future in podcasting for you. That was smooth, um, <laughs> but um, but just uh, just like the the. I don't want to give it away, but the the opening of the second uh, episode 
which is uh, entitled oh, who, the, yes. who, who, the, who the F is Columbus. Um, there's a, an alternate history of Columbus arriving um, uh, on the shores of um, uh, what, what is now Haiti. I got to I got to screen exterminate all the brutes a few days before it aired. Mm-hmm. I got a special um, preview, and when that title card came up on the screen, "Who the f is Columbus?" I was <laughs> screaming at my monitor um, because again, it's that's not usually what we see on our screens yeah, um, yeah. about Columbus. There's a, there's a whole series of events like that. That it's 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 such an incredible intervention into. Um, uh, into the, into the cinema. Anyway, um, one one of the things you bring up in the book is the way in which Haitian directors use films about the revolution or with elements of the revolution to critique contemporary politics, uh, be it under the Duvalier regimes uh, or critiques of Aristide. Uh, could you say a few words on that? Sure. So as I said um, earlier, foreigners often think, when they think of Haiti, they think only of the revolution. Sometimes their interest starts and ends with the Haitian Revolution, and they don't really think about what happened afterwards. But of course, Haitians are living this reality every day um, that's a result of the legacy of their history and the fact that there are many countries who don't like Haiti um, and see it as this kind of dangerous outpost that needs to be controlled um, in the Americas. So um, when Haitians are looking back to the revolution, they're often thinking about these unfulfilled promises and the fact that they need to struggle. So under Duvalier, under Papa Doc and Baby Doc, uh, Haitians could not make films that were critical of the government in Haiti. So it was only Haitians in diaspora who were able to make some films about the dictatorship in which they invoked the revolution and its heroes to encourage Haitians back in Haiti to rise up, to be like Toussaint, be like Dessalines, be like Christophe, and to rise um, up once again in a new Haitian revolution. And then during the bicentennial, 2003 and 2004 in Haiti, um, there there was a a big student and popular movement. It it also was led by people who were not students or popular, who were reactionary um, paramilitaries. There were different groups coming together, which is why it's tricky to talk about. Um, But there were debates about whether the bicentennial was worth celebrating. Could people dare to celebrate their revolution um, at this moment? And so I try to show in the book uh, a diversity of perspectives from people who supported Aristide, from people who critiqued Aristide, but to look at how, at this time, Haitian filmmakers looked back at the revolution as they were thinking about what should uh, our future be. Yeah, even even in the um, rural peck uh series exterminate all the brutes he he's got a a line about uh he he, does, he doesn't name Aristide but says that uh you know he he supported someone who eventually betrayed the nation yeah and i'll say that line's been controversial for a, yeah. a lot of Haitians I bet. um they think that um peck um that somehow he's a tool of neo-colonialists in that line i will say though for peck that he was up close and when people are up close and they see how the sausage is being made right it can be upsetting. And I wasn't there, so it is his truth. But his truth is that what he saw reminded him of things from earlier. Um, this kind of what Robert Fatten has called the authoritarian habitus, um, where Haitian leaders um, have had a tendency um, 
to become despotic. And again, we can talk about the situation in which they're installed often by the international community rather than having been voted for by people. And even Aristide ended up being compromised once he was overthrown by a military junta and the U.S. um, reinstalled him and put conditions on him. But yes. That would be a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. Could you say a few words on language choices? Yes. Uh, Because I found that very interesting. And also, could you, could you, I mean, I have have not been to 80. Could you sort of break down like um, a percentage of uh, Haitians who, uh, who, who are, who are Francophone, who are. Yeah. So I say. Almost everyone speaks Creole. So I'd um, say 100% of the people speak Creole. mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know what the percentage is for French, but the thing about. Haiti is that you've got this colonial language that's Mm -hmm. left over, and that is the language of government and of schooling. And then when you have people who don't have access to schooling, who are able to go to to school for only a few years, um, because it's not free, there are fees, um, and there's been all kinds of international interference. Again, I could go into detail, but it's impoverished people and made it harder for them to send their kids to school. Um, You have people who the language of government and of education is something that they can't understand. So there's really been a movement, even though the universities are in French, generally scholarly writings are in French, there's been a movement to try to do more Creole, um, which is the language that everyone understands. Now, film, here's the issue. I already mentioned that Haitian filmmakers are hustling and struggling to try to raise money for films. And I talk in the book about how there are very, very few cinemas in Haiti. And I give more detail about how this came to be. So what is the audience then for Haitian filmmakers who would make a film? International film festivals is one of the places where they're making revenues and Francophone film festivals are one of the areas. So if their film is in French, then they can get it shown in those places. But if the film is in Creole, I mean, they can do French subtitles, but it is not quite as appealing to foreign audiences. So many of these films have in fact been in French, but I talk about some filmmakers like Pierre Luxon Bellegarde, for whom it's very important that films be in Creole, um, even if he is really struggling to to make them. I mean, if you were trying to do an authentic representation of the Haitian experience, I mean, the vast majority are not going to be having casual conversation en français. Right, that's right. I mean, so if you you do it in French, that, that is right there, an inauthentic representation. Except that the um, Haitian um, films are often documentaries because dramas Mm -hmm. are more expensive. So when they're talking Mm -hmm. to talking heads, why do you ask them to speak? Do you ask them to speak French or do you ask them to speak Creole? And so that's been one of the issues. You you noted that there were some some films with the same talking heads who in one speak French and in the other speak Creole. Yes, yes. How would, would... an all French uh, documentary be uh, would it be less accessible for a Haitian audience then? First of all, the question is how are Haitians um, seeing film anyway, right? Yeah, because right. people would need, uh, the, I talk about how the fact that television sometimes asks for money to put something on TV as opposed to paying the filmmaker. Um, and there are hardly any cinemas. And do you have streaming at home? Electricity is an issue. And again, I want to place these in the context of the larger international situation, um, which is more complicated, but in which Haiti has been 
impoverished by interference numerous times. Um, Raoul Peck, we mentioned, made a film about the earthquake, the 2010 earthquake that was called Fatal Assistance, how interference by the international community that was supposed to be helping people, ostensibly helping people, was often making people more poor and endangering them. So we have that situation. Um, Inadvertently and, brought cholera as well. Yes, inadvertently, <laughs> yes. Yes, 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 yes. Thanks to Jonathan Katz for identifying that that came from the UN, which is not wanted to take accountability. But mm-hmm. the films, right, are often for foreign audiences, even by Haitians um, or for elite Haitian audiences if they're in French. So that's one reason why if there are ways we can figure out how to support Haitian filmmakers, they can make films in Creole with French or English subtitles if we will pay tickets, right? People sometimes are just tempted to just watch whatever is free that's streaming on their TV as opposed to buying a ticket for a film festival that's going to support the filmmaker and enable them to make other films. Right. So um, one area uh, that came as a surprise to me that you found actually a really vibrant uh, engagement with the revolution and, and in many ways, some much better representations of the history of the revolution was um, video games. And so this is a real surprise with me for me. Um, I'm, I'm someone who works with a lot of non-traditional sources and, and also non-traditional presentation of history. So I loved this section. Um, and um, I mean, how did you, how did you get on the track of analyzing video games and um what does the study of video games tell us about the Haitian Revolution? First, I'll say in terms of non-traditional representations that I love your graphic history um, of colonial Vietnam. And I teach a class on non-traditional histories where we study video games alongside graphic histories, including yours. Um, but I, like most historians who are not gamers, did not pay attention to historical video games. I assume we're, we're too busy reading. <laughs> we're busy reading. We go to the cinema. And there's this assumption that video games are simplistic um, and that they don't tell very good history. Again, there's some historians who are gamers who've been more alert, but many of us have not been paying attention. So my interest in uh, video games on Haiti started when a student said to me when we were studying French colonial Haiti, oh, Dr. Seppenwall, there's a new game on this. And I said, what, what do you mean there's a new game on this? And he said, his name is, is Nick Boyens. Um, he said, this is what we're studying right now. And I, I said, like, slave resistance and colonial Haiti? And he said, yes. So I had to look this up. And sure enough, Ubisoft, I thought maybe he was confused. Ubisoft Montreal was releasing this game, Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry. Actually, it was Quebec and Montreal together. Um, And I watched the trailer and I was shocked because I had been already writing and thinking about the fact that Hollywood doesn't want to, at least now, make a film about the Haitian Revolution um, and to emphasize Black agency without white... And and Black violence, I mean, right? Right. And, and, And to think about it as retributive, right? As necessary in order for freedom, not to demonize it. And... This trailer was putting the audience in the shoes of this character who's fighting against uh, evil French enslavers. And I was kind of shocked. Who is this company that's making this? And then I discovered that there were more games. 
Um, people gave me tips. Students told me about new games that I they had found. So um, there were few historians, though, who had been working on games in their area of specialty. So I really had to figure out, okay, what is my methodology? I didn't have examples in the way that I had for film. How am I going to approach these as a historian, as opposed to a literary or media scholar who looks at historical video games? What's going to be the way that I evaluate them? And yes, there are ways in which sometimes the games are ridiculous and inaccurate. And there are definitely, as you see in my book, some games that are gross um, and that repeat awful tropes. But there are some games, again, that show the perspective of enslaved people in a way, in Haiti, in a way that we don't see in film. Um, and so I try to evaluate them um, in different ways. But I'll mention also that it's always important to me not just to look at what white foreigners say about Haiti, but to see how enslaved people themselves, rem descendants of enslaved people, remember their history. So I was thrilled to discover some games that had been largely forgotten. Yeah, these these are amazing. Yes, yeah. that are the last chapter of the book that were created by the pioneering French developer from Martinique, Muriel Trami, with um, Patrick Chamoiseau, who is one of my favorite writers, as well as an illustrator named Philippe Truca. So that closes the book, looking at how these descendants of enslaved people in the Caribbean look back at this history and tried to make it remembered in a video game. And um, she produced those games in the late 80s? In the late 80s, yes. And then you, you note that they, um, people were able to um, get the code and, and, and they're, they're, they're now playable again. Yes, on, by on emulation using, right, using a kind of MS-DOS emulation. Yeah, what, what, are, what are the names of those games? So Freedom, Rebels in the Darkness, and mm -hmm. Mawillow. And Freedom Rebels in the Darkness obviously is more about slave revolt and it's set in the 18th century. Mawillo is set in the 20th century um, in Martinique, but it looks back at the kind of legacy, uh, the haunted legacies. It's a, it's a ghost story. It's a ghost game. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the figure Mackendal, who we mentioned from Haiti mm -hmm. from the 1750s, often figures in these games. Yeah. Yeah. No, I found the, a discussion of those games to be um, really insightful and, and amazing and like um, such such an important uh, 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 not not contrast but sort of something parallel going on with what the Haitian filmmakers are trying uh, are trying to do in the yes. same time period. although because they are French right because Martinique is part of France and they were able to work for a metropolitan company they had many more resources and so the games were state-of-the-art in the 1980s their technology was really pioneering, even if, right, looking back, they, they don't have the resources that Assassin's Creed does. So Muriel Trami today would love now to be able to make a game like Assassin's Creed with those kinds of resources. Um, and she's, she's, I'll say, she's starting to do some work now on a new game. Um, and I hope that she'll be able to get lots of funding and people will be able to play this. Yeah, that, that would be fantastic. I mean, the descriptions of the, of the game that you have in the book... Uh... Uh, I'd love to see that on a big budget, and um, and also just considering you know what has happened in the past ten years in terms of game culture with you know the the awful misogyny that sort of bleeds into a certain degree of racism around GamerGate, and um, some you know but at the same time some real challenges yeah. to the dominant white male sort of culture. Um, um, yes, and the, and, she. And, yeah. I was just going to say 
she was pioneering Muriel Tramie yeah. in featuring not only Black characters, but Black women avatars. People often look at Assassin's Creed's uh, game Liberation as being pioneering in having a biracial woman as the protagonist, but Muriel Tramie was having um, female avatars back in the 1980s, and so she was really prefiguring a lot of this and 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 like literally pioneering in the industry because yes. she's a black woman. Yes, working the first, in games. The first black in, woman game developer in the world. Yeah, and in in the 1980s. Yes, and then um, again, put that in context of what happens decades later with Gamergate. Yes, and the misogyny there, and the, just the rank hostility towards any idea of women in this gaming culture. But anyway, um, so it, yeah, I found it just amazing. Thank that, you, Mike. Like, here, here's this, here's this great uh, vibrancy in a vault, you know, wh- where, where academics aren't looking, you know, we're, we're so proud of ourselves for looking right. at film, but here, here in the gaming world is something going on. So I think it's absolutely brilliant. And, and I love in. Patrick Chamoiseau. I read his novels. Mm-hmm. I watched his film, Middle Passage, we know about his graphic histories, but for people who study um, the French Caribbean, we we didn't realize that he had made these games with Muriel Tremy. So that's been really amazing to see how and, some and, of his ideas he's, he's are in even, the games. He's even in the games. That's right. <laughs> they they as a little Easter egg. They his face is, is right. represented and as I one of the characters. And I spotted him as a fan. So, <laughs> so um, well, what would you like to see? If you had unlimited budget and you were a big producer and uh, with with a good sense of consci- a good consciousness, you're going to set some um, some Haitian directors on the right path. But what would you want to see in terms of cinematic representations of the Haitian Revolution on film? Um, you know, what, what's your dream film or or films? Films is good because one yeah. thing is we don't want just one film on the Haitian Revolution. Just like for the French Revolution or the Holocaust, there are so many different films that tell different aspects of the story. There should be many Haitian Revolution films for this very important historical event. Um, so uh, first, an epic would be good. I like documentaries, but there are many audiences that they want to go see an epic, meaning a sweeping historical drama. Um, so I'd like to see a film made with the budget that it should have. But I wanted there to be heavy Haitian participation. If this is a film made by Americans, whether black or white Americans, without Haitian participation, then it ends up being neocolonial, right? It's using these resources from the global north to tell the story of Haitians who are not able to disseminate themselves on screen, the stories about their own history. So I think that there should be heavy Haitian participation, which is one reason that I suggest Rel Beck would be an ideal director um, for such a film. I'd like it to include men and women, not only the great leaders, but other people, not to be racist, um, but to emphasize, again, Haitian agency um, in planning the revolution. Yes, I'd like to see more good films. And and Rel Beck has worked on a project, right? And then there's... I talk more in the book. I'll let people look in the book about what happens with that project. And there are rumors that he's working on another new project. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that that's happening. Me too. Me too. Um, I mean, in his, his, for people unfamiliar with his films, I mean, uh, his, his biopic on Lumumba is just astounding. Young Karl Marx. um, I mean, he, he's got such an incredible eye. I'll Um, I'll say for your listeners, I wrote an article about his films mm -hmm. 
that really brought them together. And I called it history is too important to leave to Hollywood. Um, slavery, colonialism, genocide, and memory. Maybe one of those words isn't there in the films of Raoul Peck. And um, it's in this volume on Raoul Peck, or people can find it in open access. I have it online too. Yeah. And, and he's such a genius, both in terms of narrative film and documentaries. I mean, yes. He works I, in a lot I'm of genres. I'm not your Negro on, um, yes. on James Baldwin. Yes. is just spectacular. I mean, you know, top 10 documentaries on my list up there with uh, Josh Oppenheimer's work. Um, well, hey, you've been really generous with your time. And I, I could talk to you for hours, but we... We'll be chatting online, I'm sure. Um, but before I let you go, I've got two questions for you. Uh, first, can you suggest two books for the audience to pick up? Well, of course, they should all read The Great Hanoi Rat Hunt if they have not already, <laughs> which is your book. Um, but in ter- I, but no, in, no, no. <laughs> in terms of Haitian history, yeah. if people have not already read it, Silencing the Past mm-hmm. um, by Michel Rolf Trouillot, Power in the Production of History, is a fantastic book. And, and, not, and not just in terms of Haitian history. Yes. Really. All historians, and yes. I think all, you know, all all thinking, educated people should read this book. It is so profound on, in so many ways, and 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 for the uh, generally poorly informed North American audience, here's something good to read on Haiti, and maybe why maybe why you don't know anything yes. about Haiti. Yes, right. And then there are a lot of wonderful books on the revolution, but one of my favorite um, is an oldie but a goodie, Carolyn Fick. Um, the Making of Haiti, the Saint-Domingue Revolution from Below. And it's just a really wonderful book that really shows resistance ongoing before 1789 and 1791. And my students really love that book. Hey, could I ask you a question? Um, okay, of course I can. <laughs> that's what, that's what, I'm, what I'm doing here. But um, what, what's, the, what's the current take on um, C.L.R. James, uh, now classic, uh, Black Jacobin. Funny you should ask that because yeah. I've actually written a reception history oh. that talks exactly about this issue of where is the field now. And yeah. so it was in the Journal of Haitian Studies. I mm-hmm. have it also online on my academia.edu page. And yep. certainly, to sum it up, very important book in many ways. Um, but there are also ways in which the kind of current historiographical consensus differs from it, which is not surprising for a book that's 75 years old. Somehow, right, we know that's normal in history that 75 years later, historians would have a different idea. But that book is so iconic that sometimes people, it's hard for them to imagine that. So Fick, in fact, it's very interesting because I used to see Fick's book as different than James, that it was a corrective to James and looking at average people, average enslaved people, and not just at the leader to St. Louverture. But in fact, I learned how did she work on this project? She was mentored by the great CLR James, who oh, suggested she? to her that maybe she should look, that he he thought he hadn't done that enough, and he suggested that she do that. So that was a oh, wonderful fantastic. detail yeah. to learn, to understand yeah. that he also had some influence behind this turn that is in some ways different from Black Jacobins. Yeah, and also he's just such a great writer, and that, that, book's, that book's just so engaging. And a monumental thinker and theorist. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There was a there was a great uh podcast on um on the Jacobin um uh podcast series on him uh, came out about a month ago that was really fabulous that just did his whole life and um what what you know just amazing. Anyway, um uh finally what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next? I'm I'm still thinking about it right now. <laughs> I definitely am gonna keep working on Haitian historiography. I'm definitely going to keep working on Haitian film. Um, some of the projects that I might do, one is about other unmade films 
by African-Americans on the Haitian Revolution in the early 20th century. If I can find enough resources, um, I have a project that I might do that's about the Haitian Revolution and U.S. hip hop. Um, and I'm going to see if there are more games that come out for me to analyze also that invoke um, Haitian heroes. Um, yes, because I found a I'm number of them that were increasing. Yeah, and I'm excited to see something on Haitian Revolution and American hip hop. That sounds uh, that sounds fantastic. KRS One. <laughs> you know, my old roommate wrote a, um, uh, essentially a, um, it was essentially an uh, intellectual love song to KRS One. Um, my the my I was roommates with a guy from Sublime, and he's got a whole uh, a whole song about. Uh, the, the refrain is, and now I know, I know because of KRS-One. There you go. So what I'll just say quickly is KRS-One and Chris Rock, that in some way this project and future project is living the dream in taking historical interests that I have and taking them into pop culture, which has always been a love of mine. And I, I've always loved KRS-One. So to discover that he's interested in Haiti and that he's pointed out silences in how people talk about Haiti, just like Chris Rock. That is a project that I really want to be able to write up. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, hey, Alyssa, Dr. Seppenwald, thank you so much for chatting with me. I really appreciate this. Thank you, Mike. This was a lot of fun. So this has been a conversation with Professor, Professor Alyssa Goldstein Seppenwald about Slave Revolt on Screen, the Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games, out with University Press of Mississippi in 2021. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.